I'm Rick Peckham, and this is Coffee Talk. Hello, and welcome again to the official podcast of the Guitar Department at Berklee College of Music. My name's Ian, and we have another episode of Coffee Talk for you. This week, we're joined by Rick Peckham. Professor Rick Peckham has toured internationally as a jazz guitarist. He's performed and recorded with folks like John Medeski, Hal Crook, George Garzon, as well as the RTE National Symphony Orchestra in Ireland. Rick is also a master educator here in the Berkeley Guitar Department, having worked as a professor for many years, as well as the assistant chair of guitar. Many of his students are also world-class jazz guitarists, several of whom have gone on to be finalists and winners at the Montreux Jazz Festival and Thelonious Monk competitions. Rick Peckham shares his insights about the learning process and pedagogy from his veteran status as an educator. As always, a lot of this content will also be available on YouTube, and we have a ton of other great content on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, so give us a like and a subscribe on whatever platform you use. Here's our interview with Rick Peckham. Hi, everyone. I'm Kim Perlack. I'm the chair of the guitar department, and welcome to another Coffee Talk. As usual, we have with us Cheryl Bailey, assistant chair. Hey, Cheryl. Good morning. Hey, everybody. I have uh, water. Sorry. Ooh. That's very hydrating at the midterm <laughs> of the semester. Is there caffeine in there? No. <laughs> uh, we've got Ian Steed, our senior coordinator. Hey, Ian. Hey, all. And our special guest today is Professor Rick Peckham, who was assistant chair for many, many years and is an author, jazz guitarist, and just longtime pedagogue here at Berkeley. Welcome, Rick. Thank you very much. Yeah, but I was I was looking. I dug it out because I wondered I, uh, when I got here in '86, and then I was in the ear training department for three years. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's that's 1986. Uh, anyway, yeah, and um, <laughs> in ear training, and for three years, and then three years in a a, a department called performance studies, which has been folded into the ensemble area since then. And then uh, um, I, for, for 21 years, I was assistant chair of the department, and that was uh, until 2013. So now I'm happily uh, teaching away for eight years uh, as a faculty member in the guitar department. So, yeah, that's basically where I'm coming from. That's fantastic. And, you know, in addition to all of that, I think there are a number of people who are listening who will recognize your voice and a number of people who are watching who will recognize you right away because you have been to many different countries and that's an understatement for Berkeley on the road for auditions. I believe you also directed the Puerto Rico program. Well, artistic well, director, I was, uh, yeah, head hot and taut there. I mean, there were other people doing uh, all the administrative stuff, but uh, yeah, they did that. Yeah. And, and Cheryl was down and Cheryl was down there at the same time a couple of times when I was there. Oh, that's great. Yeah, so many students around the world um, have studied with you. And then also, uh, as I briefly mentioned, you have a number of books with Berkeley Press. And you're a Berkeley Online instructor as well. It's funny you mentioned that about my voice, too, because uh, um, uh, Scott McCormick, whom I worked with uh, in the ear training department, we came up with a musicianship book uh, years ago, and there was a cassette, and uh, there's a big concert at the end. 
And, uh, you know, uh, a lot of people recognize my voice because I was the one that did the introductions. They would do a huge concert where people would sing solfege over pop songs over and it'd be like, uh, and so I'd say number 14, James Brown got the feeling. I play that during the concert, and uh, I've I've run into you know people on the faculty that say, yeah uh, yeah we hear your voice every year at this concert anyway yeah so you never know you have to be careful when that record button is pressed. <laughs> That's really true. Well, you've got a great voice for it. You've got you've got a great voice for it. Yeah, it's well, I I get away with it. I got away with it for that one. Yeah, but it's uh, yeah it's uh, James Brown has been announced better by other people. I have to admit. <laughs> Well, there's a lot of things we want to talk about, about your playing and about your, um, your teaching approach. And, but first we have to know, what are you drinking in terms of coffee? Are you a coffee drinker and how do you take it? I, I am, uh, that's, you know, wherever I go and including at home, it's uh, well, it's changed over the years. It's like, uh, there's, I need coffee and Wi-Fi. Those are the two things. Sometimes it's Wi-Fi and coffee, but yeah, that, so I have a, a Nespresso, not not as fancy as the one in the office, but uh, a classic Nespresso. Uh, and this is um, a Nespresso uh, Cappuccino, I think is the, uh, no, no, no. It's Arpeggio, um, and appropriately enough, is the flavor. And uh, um, it is the earlier, and just black, that's it. Black, uh, just caffeine and uh, repeat, rinse and repeat. That's what I do pretty much all day. <laughs> You know, it's funny because we've noticed unintentionally that um, having this segment is very telling because often people's coffee choice reflects something about their guitar playing choices. And, um, and you are very well known in your teaching for your approach to chords and arpeggios. So I think that is very telling. That's, you know, that's right. It's, uh, it, it lines up. It's a cosmic, uh, yeah, just, just convenience. That's what I would say. Yeah, absolutely. And the fundamental, like the black coffee being the fundamental. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. You don't want to leave the triads out. You, you don't, you're not going to argue to leave the triads out. Are you? Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. That's <laughs> yeah. coffee with any seventh chord. That's for sure. Fantastic. Mm -hmm. um, so Rick, as you mentioned, you had a number of different first days at Berkeley when you first came and then going into different departments when you think back over them are there is there a moment or moments that stand out about your first days at berkeley like what your impressions were in the different areas that's a fun thing to think about actually the very first day at berkeley i mean i, I was down at uh, north texas state uh, and now it's the university of north texas and I was beginning work on a, a doctorate down there but uh, i i have yet to complete that um, and I don't know if that'll ever happen there. There's so many other things to do, but, uh, uh, one of my, my buddies and roommates down there was, uh, Bruce Saunders. We were down there together. Anyway, I was hired at Berkeley. Um, they flew me up, um, for a, in, an interview. And at the time in uh, 1986, around that time, one thing everybody knew is nobody got hired at Berkeley unless you were a Berkeley graduate. Um, but the, the pendulum never swings to the middle and it had gone the other way and they were hiring people, uh, that went elsewhere. That's uh, so it was, it went kind of crazy the other direction for a while. And uh, I was flown up and interviewed in the ensemble department, which I, I was really psyched about and the ear training department, which, you know, I had survived ear training. 
Um, but I was hired in the ear training department. So um, I, I came up and my first day at Berkeley, I got dressed in a suit. I put on a tie. I came in and it was there. Uh, you know, I figured 830 would be a good time because classes started at nine usually. And I didn't have any classes on that day. <laughs> I mean, I had I figured you just if you're a faculty member, you're just here all the time. That's what you would do. So uh, that's the my first day was that. But uh, um, then my first classes, which were the next day, I had uh, a couple of uh, offspring of the uh, rich and famous uh, Jason Nesmith, uh, son of of Mike Nesmith, was in my ear training class, and uh, uh, Harper Simon, the son of Paul Simon, was in there. It was right in the same class. Uh, so uh, I was uh, amazed at uh, sort of the breadth of the draw of, of people at Berkeley. And then that first day, I sort of got an a introduction on that. I, I had lots of charts and things that I had transcribed, and it was sort of a natural thing for me to get involved with it. But uh, there were a lot of things I had to learn and get control of to act like they weren't a big deal to all of my students. So, uh, you know, just to make it uh, figure out the best way to kind of get those skills in into the uh, student's toolkit. And uh, that's what I've been doing basically ever since. I have a question about your teaching at that particular time. And I'm wondering, as a jazz guitarist, you're coming out of an incredibly well-known program, um, a very high-level competitive program. And I'm, I'm guessing that a lot of your time was spent on the guitar uh, playing. And I'm wondering what that experience lent to you as you became an ear training teacher how did you draw on your experience as a as a jazz musician as a player when you taught ear training it's that's an interesting way of looking at it yeah the um i think i think what i really needed to do is put my energy into to learning the the movable dough system and all the different chromatics and all of that uh, I, there were a lot of things that uh, all the students needed to know that I really had to brush up on. But as far as, you know, having the capacity to write out charts and things, I was, uh, I was always uh, more, well, when I met Bruce Saunders, he had a huge stack. I mean, a stack of manuscript books, not a stack of manuscripts, but of books where he had transcribed all of this stuff. Uh, Charlie Parker, uh, Ed Bickert, uh, people I had never heard of before. Um, he was on top of that. So he was, uh, he nailed all of the, the transcriptions of solos. And I had worked on some of that as well. My main thing was to work. I, I sort of had a stack of tunes. I was always looking for songs that were uh, uh, not in the, the typical fake books that everybody used and, and just try to figure out those things to, to try to, uh, get a different angle on things because I didn't want to be springing tunes on people that they already knew and I wanted them to be great tunes so there's and that's basically what I've been doing ever since rather than just having obvious go-to things that that's that's what I've done in my teaching because uh, again back to my uh, work with uh, Scott McCormick in the ear training department at the beginning it was he was a great person to work with he retired several years from Berkeley but he had studied at the Franz Liszt Academy in um, in Budapest, Hungary, and uh, he was just a great teacher. And the the Liszt Academy was very involved with the Kodai approach to ear training, and so uh, and uh, really just just so much respect for the idea of 
pedagogy and teaching and how to do it and to teach anything properly. It's not just remembering how you learn something. It's it's knowing 20 different ways of explaining what you're doing so that, uh, you know, just in the same way, if I, if I said, oh, you're having trouble with your eyesight here, just take these glasses. Uh, you know, you you would you would pitch over. I, I guarantee you. There's I don't know what's going on in my glasses, but I'm able to see through them. But you know what I mean. It's it's different for each person. You've got to find a different way to get in there. So um, to me, and and when I was at North Texas, I had worked as a graduate uh, teaching fellow down there, uh, and I had experience uh, teaching and really basically thinking on my feet, which uh, has uh, served me throughout my life. Um, and um, making it so that I was teaching, well, there was a great teacher down there, uh, Rich Madison, who's no longer living, but he would call me up in the morning and said, uh, uh, Rick, I'm not feeling tops today. You got to take all my classes. So here I was as a grad assistant taking over uh, all of the, this, this master uh, uh, professor from around the world, all of his classes. And uh, I went in and, and I did it. I, I just was, you know, how did you, how did I do it? I scrambled and got it done. I figured out what I could do to uh, capture the interest of the people that were in the room. And, uh, you know, I, I knew I wasn't so great necessarily, but, you know, Thelonious Monk and Duke Ellington and uh, the ma master musicians, I had Joe Henderson, the master musicians that I admired were great. So we just, uh, I would just work to get them closer to, to those people. And when I came to Berkeley, I was kind of surprised because I had seen all the materials about it. I thought all the jazz stuff that I had learned, that was just completely passe and not applicable because everything was rock, pop. Uh, and again, I'm talking about 1986 uh, with the, um, the materials that I had seen. So I was working to f scrambling to find things that were in the rock and rhythm and blues area and all of that uh, to make it so that I was conversant with that. Uh, when I landed up here, I could see that there was a, 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 a this was a rich, uh, a fertile ground for for teaching and helping people in the area of jazz. But I've never had problems with working with people in any style. Again, the idea is uh, to get closer to what the quality is. I mean, to me, there's a, it's like a triangular thing. I don't know if I could do this with my camera here, but it's like a triangle. I mean, to me, there's uh, um, the teacher is there. And the student is here and the music is here. And our job as teachers is to make this connection between the music and the student. It's not to make the connection between the, the, music, the student and the teacher necessarily, or to prove to the audience there how close uh, the teacher is to music, but to, to help connect the student to the music. Um, and uh, that's my, my master's from North Texas is in music, music education. And uh, that's, uh, I, I could see the, the value of looking at things that way. I, I will also say, when I was down there, one thing I was sure of is I wasn't going to be a teacher. I didn't want to be a teacher. I wanted to play. I was going to play, but I kept finding, you know, the world kept telling me that I was able to teach and uh, I, I found challenges with it. I found people that I admired that were great teachers and great players. So I saw that the two things could come together. So I was really excited about uh, trying to get that happening. And again, that's another thing I've been trying to do since since I stumbled onto the concept. I feel like listening to you talk about it that way, 
it's very clear to me that you have brought that all through your different career paths at Berkeley. You definitely brought that to your time as the assistant chair in that sense that you were learning how to make things work. You were learning how to make things work for the students. You're thinking on your feet. You approach teaching and administration, it seems like, the way you approach playing the guitar. Like, learn as much about it as you can. Learn how you can adapt to different things you don't see coming. Be creative with it. Find some fun with it. Connect with people through that. And um, if you fast forward to when I came in 2013, in mm -hmm. your first year back on the faculty, I remember one day I was sitting at the table, and I must have looked overwhelmed, like that table in our office, and you came up to me and you said, you know, you don't have to know how to do everything because we have someone for that. <laughs> you, can, uh -huh. you know, we have all these experts. You can really figure out what you want to do, what you want to work on here. And you were showing us all that because at that time you had wanted to get really into like this Jerry Reed, Chet Atkins kind of playing. Yeah. And not only had taken off as a student in that playing from one of our faculty, Guy Van Duzer, who did bring into the faculty um, which was beautiful for everyone but then you were also exploring like how do I teach this how do I play with that ensemble like what could we do you're there doing transcriptions they were touring they were that was a really big deal ensemble and it it just showed me that wow you know when you come here you can learn as an artist and make the, that connection to being a faculty member and to being uh, an administrative leader at the college was that something that you knew right away when you became assistant chair or did that develop over time, that awareness that that the chair position for assistant chair was also a creative position? Well, you know, it, when I first got to Berkeley, um, people were hired and uh, I, I mean, people that were here, it was really kind of it was a different world. The, the music business was a different world and uh, actually it didn't. 1985 Berkeley had let's say redefined itself with uh, the structure um, and and uh, contracts and all that sort of stuff and faculty weren't sure whether they wanted teaching jobs or not they wanted to perform there were a lot of you know the six nighters and things touring opportunities that were going on so it was a, a much more liquid sort of thing um, but uh, as as I spent time working with Larry as assistant chair uh, working with Larry as the chair um, we saw how important it was with the hiring of, of hiring the right people and um, really working to decide whether somebody was going to be a, a great person to work here or not. I mean, for example, if, uh, if a potential um, faculty member was talking about what he or she did all the time and never mentioned anything that they'd done with students, you know, it just, it just sort of set off some, um, you know, uh, uh, well, some red flags as far as whether it would work. I mean, to, to me, it's always been looking for people that uh, can play well and have great communication skills and um, have have the uh, the capacity to express to the student that they care whether they get it or not, whether the student gets it or not. And uh, that's those are sort of the, the three things that uh, that we always looked for, I think, or I was looking for and, and that I had learned from from the great people I had worked with. I mean, there just was sort of a, a moment when I was practicing, when I was doing something for um, some people that I worked with at North Texas, like Jack Peterson, who also had, uh, uh, he was the guy that established the guitar department at Berkeley, even before William Levitt was here. Mm 
and just sort of the quality and approach that they had to um, teaching and that there really was there was a it's uh, it's kind of like a, a an artistic empathy sort of thing where there is a, a where you know I'm you're working to get better I'm working to get better we're learning more about the music that we love this is fantastic and uh, to me that that is something I, you know that I caught wisps of that from Jack Peterson and and Rich Madison and Dan Hurley down in Texas and uh, well, and, and other great teachers I'd worked with, it's just sort of like a common flow where we're all kind of working together to get where we want to go rather than this sort of thing where it's just sort of top down where, um, uh, you know, uh, another another distortion of that triangle sort of thing is I'm the teacher that knows everything. Uh, you will only learn what I want you to know. And that's it. And the student is down here, sort of a target for all that stuff. To me, the, you know, the thing is, you know, what do you want to know about? How can how can I help you to do it? It's almost like a, a great producer in a recording. A, a great producer will help you get what you want if you know what you want. Uh, a great producer will help you with the things you're having trouble with to get it together. And actually, in the end, if you don't know what you want or how to get it, the producer will lead you through it and basically do it for you so you see how it goes so you can do it yourself. So uh, I've, I've found that that kind of approach works very well with with uh, teaching any style of music too, you know, like, well, just, uh, have you ever written out anything like this in this style? Oh, you haven't. Okay. Well, let's do this together. All right. Yeah. This, this bar, you want to put a double bar there, uh, emphasize the double bars when you're playing the way you hear it on this recording. Let's, let's, let's see, you know, form is the invisible language of musicians. What, what is the, what is the, what are the invisible rules? that are the always and nevers of the style that each each style I find that we we run across has a set of always and nevers and with uh, running into uh, Guy Van Duser while I was interested in working on the finger style. He was um, he he totally knew all the always and nevers uh, that he had learned from from uh, Chad Atkins and working not not with people that had heard Chad Atkins but actually working with and for Chet Atkins. He did arrangements. Uh, Chet Atkins was going to do, uh, uh, he, he needed to play the wedding march or something. Or, um, and I think that's what it was. And uh, he, he asked the guy to make a recording. Guy made a, a recording of it and sent the cassette to Chet Atkins. And that was it. There was no notation or anyway. Uh, things that uh, Guy um, invented on the guitar, but he sent to uh, you know, what the person a lot of people think is the greatest guitarist ever. So that it was, uh, it's it's amazing. So the things that he would say when I always love it when I'm working with a a great artist or or somebody that uh, I'm working alongside to find out. Oh yeah, you always do that. Oh no, you never do that. And uh, those always and nevers a lot of times don't make their way into the books or the videos or anything. It's uh, uh and it it is it is gold. This is it. It's a miracle moment when you know you are not wasting your time talking to that person. <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. I, I really love this. Um, and I love the way that the way you're talking, there isn't a separation between any of the roles that you've had. Mm -hmm. You have a philosophy of teaching. And I think, you know, if as people have been looking back in these conversations, when they think of you and Larry and and um, some of the big things that you did, you shape the faculty by bringing a lot of people in most of the people who um, we think of 
a lot of them came, they, their first memory is Rick gave me a call or I talked to Rick or I got an email from Rick or mostly a phone call. And, um, I think what you described the way you were, how you were looking for people and what you were looking for, um, maybe that answers the question a lot of people have when they look at the faculty at Berkeley where they say, wow, you have so many guitar players and there isn't a weird vibe there. There seems to be a really nice vibe of community. Everybody seems to like each other and respect each other. In fact, when people listen to Coffee Talk, one of the comments we get is like, wow, you all, you all work together really well. Like You clearly like each other. And I think that is a testament to the way that the two of you saw the process, like what your goal was. And then the other big thing I think goes hand in hand with that, which is it was right around the time that you came that you and Larry and Mick and, and other faculty reframed the proficiency materials to say like, okay, if our goal is to create this community in which we're all in this together moving forward, what are the fundamental skills in the curriculum we need to make sure we focus on? And you know, what have we been doing that maybe isn't as helpful to students as what could move forward. And, and these are things as, you know, Larry and you and I and Cheryl have reviewed them in the last couple of years. They really stand up. They're, they're things, these philosophies have really become kind of the signature of the department. I think all based in that idea of learning and being creative and, you know, putting the students and, and our learning together with them at the center of of what you did all those years. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah, there, there, there is a, a kindred spirit kind of. And when I think about it, I mean, it's, it's also back to whenever I've felt kind of uh, down or frustrated. I mean, uh, there are two things that are consistent, um, the things that cheer me up. And it, it's the music that we're working with and the students that we're working with. I mean, it's those are both sort of pure uh, the, the um, every every fall, the the level of energy brought in by the entering class, with the, with the the people. I mean, they just they've worked so hard to walk through those doors, and it's very frustrating now with the the setup with COVID and all that. But they've worked so hard to get here, and they are so interested in everything. And that that is just sort of a, it's like an, an infusion, uh, like a lifeblood for the the place. Um, and um, and that it's a, a larger group of students from a larger um, cross section of the world. Uh, it just it just is amazing. I mean, this is just like a, 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 a nuclear power plant of inspiration and musical energy. I mean, it just is a powerhouse as far as that goes. And the energy um, comes through the students. It's, uh, it's, it's great to have great faculty. It's great to have great facilities. And Berkeley has that, that's for sure. But the number one thing and the number one um, asset of a Berkeley education, I would say, is uh, access to others in the, in the group of students. You are, you are, whenever you hear people that have been mega successful from Berkeley, and even when they sit down for an interview and they're talking about it, you know, how did this start for you? You can almost see it dawning on the person at that point. Oh, yeah, it was in Berkeley. You know, hearing uh, John Schofield talk about, yeah, I used to play with Joey Barron or I knew Joe Lovano there. We were in different practice rooms. Um, uh, but, you know, there are just so, so many other um, great musicians as well. I mean, you know, like when Esperanza Spaulding, uh, was here. I mean, I I did auditions. We were in Seattle, and Jim Odgren and I were doing auditions, 
and he was this um, amazing bassist, uh, um, you know, uh, and imagine having her sitting next to you in your ear training class or whatever in the first semester. It's just, uh, um, or just to see all the things that blossom from that. And, uh, you know, I don't mean to just pick on a couple of names. There are just, there are just so many, but, uh, uh, it's, it is, uh, that, that I think is sort of the secret sauce of, of Berkeley is just letting the music do it. I mean, uh, another one of my um, saw horses that I use that I talk about with my fingers up <laughs> is, you know, the, the thing about Berkeley, the number one thing is you play it first. You play it first. What are you interested in? Start playing it. You play it first. Then you find out what's involved with it theoretically. So it's not the, at first, it's just like in the world. First came the music, then came the theory. And then you find ways to ad adapt what you've learned theoretically and through the playing into different styles and context, into different um, uh, corners of, of a particular style, or even going wildly to a different style and seeing that actually this, this concept that, uh, you know, this will work, this will work in country music, it works in funk, it works in R&B, it works in in um, uh, hard rock, anything, uh, as well as jazz. So that that sort of uh, thing, I think, um, so often when I've had the opportunity to travel, and, and you all know about it too, um, students around the world or potential students are, are so amazed at how sharing you are with what you're doing and how you're in there just working to help them to get them doing it rather than, um, you know, having... Some, I mean, it almost seems like uh, in, in the uh, educational world, there's, there's a bit of kind of, there's a, a wall there. There's a kind of hazing that goes on between the, the teacher and the student. And there's none of that at Berkeley that I've ever seen. I mean, certainly there's a, it's a competitive atmosphere, and I'm sure it's not the easiest place in the world for all the students to be all the time. When they see people that are uh, in, a, in a different dimension, uh, uh, on level wise than where they've been, but uh, Berkeley has always been a place that has also provided stair steps to make it so that rather than, well, you know, sorry, you just don't have it. It's like, well, no, let's let's talk about the triads. Let's do inversions of triads. Let's talk about the scale. Let's do the scale in thirds. Let's move it around so that there are things that are building up rather than you know, you've either got it or you don't. Berkeley has never believed that. I, I, that's the way. That's what I think is one of the strongest things about the place. It's just, just the kind of um, the respect for someone that wants to know, someone who's inspired and wants to get better. Uh, it's a, uh, you know, if you if you have a, a student that's inspired. I mean, I I just I think of a a long parade of students. One is uh, Brooks Robertson, who came here as, at a, a very high level. And uh, um, he, he um, actually, I took um, online lessons with him um, before he was at Berkeley. I met him at the, uh, um, the Chet Atkins Appreciation Society convention that I went to. I think it was in 2015, I think. Um, and... Um, he has uh, he he was in the uh, Jerry Reed Chet Atkins group that I directed. I think he was in it six times or seven times, and uh, and and since then he he has left and is very successful doing lots of things. Of course, online as everybody's online, but he does great things on Facebook, 
and he's worked with True Fire, continued to work with them. He also found ways to contact Jerry Reed's estate and has uh, legal transcriptions that you can purchase of. Uh, he, he found 16 Stars, I think is the name of the company. Uh, amazingly industrious that he had to just weed his way through all of that kind of music business uh, stuff. And, uh, and he makes videos. You can get the charts that go with it. He's imparting this music uh, to the world um, uh, in a very pure way, which is what I wanted to do. I mean, to me, you know, I've uh, from the very beginning, I've, I've played in I was playing in a prog rock band when I was in Ohio a long time ago. We were trying to do a Genesis song. I think that's what it was. And I, I stopped the band. I said, uh, I don't think that's right there. And and, and you know, the organ player said, well, you know, we're not doing what they're doing. This is an arrangement. <laughs> So, you know, that was my introduction to the idea that there's a big difference between outside and lost. Anyway, so it's, uh, you know, it's not uh, not the same thing. So the idea of, you know, building a strong foundation, find out who the greatest people are, make it so that you can do it the way they're doing it. And then, you know, again, another three finger thing, imitate, assimilate, innovate. You take it so that you're able to do it the way the great person did it. The model did it, and you're, you know, you don't have to think about it that much. You're sort of getting the idea, oh, you know, here's something that that original person would have never thought of in a million years, and there you are doing it, you know, built on that uh, standing on the shoulders of giants. You know, that's the idea. Yeah, and, you know, about Brooks, it's so not surprising to me knowing him that he connected with you because I think he has a very similar outlook on learning and and being a professional and maybe in some ways you were like-minded and then I think he picked up on some influence from you in the sense that Brooks was a professional player mm -hmm. and then came to Berkeley and came in the office and said okay listen here are things I've always wanted to be able to do that are my gaps yep and um, you know I want to be a better reader I want to learn to improvise I want to learn to write and you know um, here's what I do well and I want to keep developing it. And here are things that this is my chance to sort of go back to the beginning. And, and it takes a lot of courage to do that. And I think that's a great thing just to mention again, that this is something that he did as a young professional. And then this is something that you did and really all the faculty are doing, but I think very powerfully he found you and, and you've demonstrated this, as you've said, in every stage of your career that you get to a very high level and in some cases, the highest level of professional ability in one area. And then you say, oh, look, I'm really interested in this. And it's not at the same level. What can I do to learn it? And you see it as this creative challenge, even when it's really hard, when it's really challenging to admit that there are things that you're not comfortable with. And I think a lot of students who are listening are at that point where they really want to be able to say, I, I want to have the courage to say this is a weak point. But it's very hard to admit when you've hit a level of ability that there are other things that aren't as strong. And, and I, I think this is a great example between you and Brooks of, of two people of, of different generations who had the courage to do that and look at all the doors that open for you. Absolutely. Uh, another person I think of is uh, Lionel Lewicki. Uh, yes. Yeah. He was established, uh, I, I think it's from Benin. He was established as a recording artist. He came to Berkeley and basically started from scratch. I mean, I remember, uh, again, not 
not because he was at scratch. Uh, he just he came to Berkeley and this was a place where he wanted to learn, um, you know, all the aspects of music that he had been curious about. And uh, he was not invested in just getting, uh, you know, a stamp of approval and just getting sent straight out to the world again. <laughs> he was interested in in uh, immersing himself completely. You know, it's a it, it really does take a real strength of character because a lot of times when somebody's very accomplished, there's a, a real temptation to argue uh, with somebody who's showing you something, just saying, well, yeah, I, I never do that. I do this other thing, you know, and, and this is why I do this other thing. Please don't say anything more about this thing. I just want to think about the way I do it. Um, but this is not, uh, this was not the attitude that he took. Instead of putting energy into finding, um, you know, a way to shore up what he was doing already uh, with some sort of justification, he put his energy into just immersing himself, and he, he worked he worked with a, a, a lot of the great teachers at Berkeley, and uh, he also uh, worked with some uh, some great. Um, oh, I'm I'm trying to think of. Uh, he continues to work with uh, Massimo Bilcati, uh, who is the mastermind of iReal Pro, and uh, I'm I'm spacing out on the name of his drummer, um, who was there too. Anyway, he met both of them, and I'm sorry if if you hear that, I'll think of it later. Um, but uh, he um, he not only learned from the teachers that were here and made it so that, you know, he just dug in. If it was something he hadn't heard of before, he, he, he just immersed himself until he could breathe it himself. Then he combined it with his, uh, his background himself uh, as a, an accomplished uh, African musician, uh, a successful pop uh, player, I think, in, in, uh, in Africa. And he crossed it with what he had, and uh, he took what he was able to do here and did an audition for what was called the Thelonious Monk Institute at the time. Now it's the Herbie Hancock Institute. He flew out to um, California and auditioned, and in the auditioning team was Herbie Hancock and Wayne Shorter. And he performed for them, and right in front of him, they started to argue which one of them was going to get him for the, for their band. You know, Wayne said, I want him in my band. And Herbie said, no, I saw him first. He's going to be in my, I don't know what they really said, but it was that uh, Lionel called me after he had done that audition. And I'd say, you know, I think the audition went pretty well. That's a, that's a good one when you have Herbie and Wayne arguing about whether you, which one was going to get you. But the idea of, just he just he crossed with his background what he was able to learn in a Berkeley education, and to go on uh, again I'm, I feel terrible I can't think of this drummer's name, but uh, they he had opportunities to record with stars early on again with Herbie Hancock and Wayne I think Herbie is on one of his first albums but uh, Lionel um, and uh, Kurt Rosenwinkel did a similar thing. He was not interested in just recording with the stars. He wanted to bring his band with him. And the band that he had was made up of Berkeley people. And to me, that's a, it's one of the greatest success stories that Berkeley's ever had. What Leonel Lewicki did also, uh, Esperanza did the same thing. And uh, Esperanza Spaulding, of course, and, and Brooks Robertson too. Uh, but boy, there, there's just such a, an amazing list of great musicians that, uh, I've been fortunate enough to encounter and work with and 
and uh, try to figure out a way to help. And uh, it's it's a gift when they contact me again and just, you know, say hello or tell me what's going on. That's great. That's great. Cheryl, what's on your mind at, at this point in conversation? Well, there's a couple things. I mean, I really love this last stream that we've hit on about, you know, players that come and they're accomplished in so many ways and, and the courage that it takes to come and just start at nothing at the basics, you know, and that I think that's really important for students to hear and, and for all of us to hear because it always comes down to fundamental. It always comes down to those dang triads right? (laughs) and the inversions. But also I wanted to touch on something you said earlier, um, just about teaching and learning in that there, there isn't one way. It's not a cookie cutter approach. And I mean, oftentimes that just even talking about improvisation concepts or harmony, oftentimes I describe it to students as a diamond, a big giant diamond. The center's always there, but you can look to that center from many different faucets. You can from the top, from the bottom, the side, and you keep spinning it around, but you all, it takes you to the center, but no one, it, no, you don't, no one has to look at the same way. And, and that, um, that process of, in terms of being a teacher, trying to, at, at you, I think you just said it, I can't remember exactly how you said it, but it was really great about that it's finding all these different ways, maybe to say the same thing. Well, this is a triad, but not everybody understands it in the same way. Or also, it may, often makes me think of, sometimes you'll be out somewhere and you run into somebody and go, oh, you teach guitar, you know, maybe a, an adult beginner. And they'll tell you, oh, I'm, I'm doing this. Is that right? Is that the right way to do it? <laughs> you know, and you go, if it's working for you and you're progressing, and then it, that's the right one. And I think that's also really important for students to remember is that, we all don't learn in the same way. It's it's absolutely true. I, well, and I I love uh, the the analogy of a diamond because uh, with a diamond you don't have to explain to anybody that a diamond is beautiful. <laughs> People, you know, it's it can be a different diamond than you've ever seen before, and you just hold it up. And there it is, and uh, you know everybody regardless of background or where, where they come from or what it's, it just has a universal appeal. So how do you, how do you get that quality? What's, what's in there? But yeah, also I, I get the idea too, Cheryl, the idea of like a, a different concept will have a, a different way of seeing it. You know, it'll, it'll shine light in different ways. Uh, yeah. I've, I've talked, uh, I've spoken of a prism before, but I think Actually, a diamond is better because it's uh, they're you know more multifaceted, literally, and uh, um, you know more valuable. <laughs> yeah, I like that, um, Ian. As we're talking about all of this, um, there's a question you generally ask, and I don't know if that question is on your mind or. Um, if something else is on your mind that perked up Rick's attention, he was like, Oh, what's the question? It's yeah. kind of like the big secret surprise question. Um, go ahead, Ian. Yeah. So, uh, I, I mean, it ties right in and that's, uh, you know, just, you know, turning that shape and having somebody see it in a new way. I mean, the question that <clears throat> we always ask in this, in, in these coffee talks is, uh, 
you know, if you have a student, whether or not they're, you know, somebody who came in like Brooks Robertson or, or whoever, but like somebody who might be asking you a bunch of questions and wanting to think about something in one way and you want to get them to think about it in a new way, like what's something that students should be asking that they might not even think to ask? Hmm. Well, um, I, yeah, that's that's a very interesting question. Um, the the thing that uh, I think that uh, that uh, all all teachers can run into um, a problem when they're in a position that they are answering questions that the students don't have. You know, like if you have if you have this kind of chord, this is the scale that you use on this kind of chord. And the students thinking, I don't have that kind of chord. <laughs> I'm not interested in what to do over that kind of chord because I don't like that chord. I don't like anyway. The idea of of uh, um, making it so that uh, that you're answering questions that uh, a student will have. I mean, my trick to do that is to give them a song that's in the style that they really like, and they run into a place where they, they don't have, there's, um, well, and having uh, Vic Wooten uh, uh, visiting my classes last week, which was a fantastic thing. And the thing that he talked about is, you know, when, when you're talking about music, if you have a question about anything in music, try to make it about words, you know, make it so that it's about words, like you don't know how to pronounce this particular type of word, or you have to, to speak on a topic that you don't know anything about, how do you find anything about. So this idea of making it so that it, that anything you're wondering about has to do with um, uh, the spelling of a word, or but it's a, it's a word that you want to have as a crucial part of your story. This kind of thing of really um, making it so that uh, if, uh, and I don't mean to be, um, uh, you shouldn't just be brimming over with attitude about it, but just saying, can you tell me, can you tell me uh, a place in music where I would need this? What's, where's a place where I would need to be able to do this? Uh, that would be a good question to ask, you know, also, you know, like a, a same, it's sort of beginning with the end in mind, that sort of thing. I mean, uh, when, when students uh, come to Berkeley um, uh, for to find out about the place and whether they want to study here or not, um, or they're looking at a graduate program, as, as some people I'm talking to are as well, I said get get uh, talk to the person who's in charge, uh, and and say, okay, when somebody gets the master's degree, uh, what what are some of the people? Uh, what are they able to do now that they didn't do? What what are some success stories with people that got your master's degree? What are some success stories with the people that got the performance uh, major degree at Berkeley or or uh, pro music or um, uh, commercial writing and production? And uh, you know, sort of ask the question with that. So now to go back to sort of a musical example like that, it's just like okay. Uh, I, I'm very interested because I can see that you're passionate, Mr. Teacher or Ms. Teacher, um, uh, that uh, that you're doing this. How would I be able to use this? Can you show me a piece of music where this happens? And uh, you know, to me, um, if you if you're interested in the music that it applies to, then you'll be interested in it. Um, and uh, the real the central job of any teacher is to capture the student's interest. If you have the student's interest, if you get into that kind of uh, 
I don't know, uh, video game energy or Call of Duty energy or whatever. I don't play that game. Um, what uh, the something of Catan, Prisoners of Catan energy, uh, you know. Uh, I have sons, and I wouldn't be able to stop them playing that game if uh, you know, if uh, for for love or money, um, and that's that's the way it is. If if there is a concept that you can see why you want to know it, you're not going to stop until you get there. So maybe if it's something that you're having problems with music musically, you just haven't found the application that would be of great interest to you. You know, maybe the uh, configuration of uh, uh, drop three or drop two uh, for voicings would make it so that you could write for strings. So you, so, or you could do an arrangement where you just take this set of voicings or drop two and four or drop two and three, um, where it works for this instrumentation. There, there are great reasons to know these configurations, and they go a lot further than because that's what's on the test. <laughs> <laughs> if if that's the only justification uh, that you can think of, uh, go to your teacher, find their office hour, and just say, you know, I'm I'm working on this like crazy. Can you tell me why I would want to do this? What 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 is an application? So that would be my my long winded answer to your question. Yeah, yeah, I would think Rick. In addition to the people who you've seen who came as professionals to Berkeley. You've also seen a tremendous number of people come in and maybe come in and look around and think like, was there a mistake made? Like, am I meant to be here? And then you're like, yes, of course you're meant to be here. And then you watch them just sort of build on all these fundamentals, maybe sometimes almost from scratch, never really from scratch, but in some ways they may feel and then just have just take off in a tremendous way. You seem to be a believer in the power of knowledge of all the fundamentals and the creative applications of them. And you've seen that really work for people. Yep, without question. That's, that's a great way to put it. Uh, and to me, that's the real measure of, uh, of the Berkeley education. The fact that if, yes, indeed, you do these things step by step and you make it so that you do it at, at a very high level, um, even the basics, you build on the basics and you build on this and you build on that. It will uh, it'll take you to where you want to go. Uh, again, the uh, conservatory uh, approach often is you have to be at a super high level to get in and that's it. And it's, uh, it's you know, them that got it, got it and them that don't, don't that sort of thing. And they may never. Um, Berkeley is not uh, uh, like the. Um, uh, the virtuosic, uh, what do you call it? Uh, somebody that is, uh, uh, you know, like a, um, a five-year-old piano player that can do. Uh, oh, like a prodigy. Yeah, the the prodigy sort of thing. Um, a lot of times, uh, uh, a conservatory will attract uh, someone who is of a prodigious uh, prodigious talent, and they can even say prodigious. Anyway, prodigious talent. <laughs> And, that's the thing. You, yeah. you, if you can pr pronounce that at Berkeley, that's how they know you're not really yeah. ready. That's, you're not ready. Yeah. I can't even say it. Don't try to get me to spell it. There's no way. Anyway, uh, this this sort of thing about well, you just you just do it. You just do it. Um, uh, Berkeley is not that place where you say you just do it. Uh, there there are a lot of people that have worked very hard to find a lot of ways to help you to build up on stair steps, making it so that 
you're able to go from what feels like nothing. It's not really nothing. It's uh, just at a basic level in that particular area. And, you know, we'll take you to the, the skill level that you want to be. I mean, it is, it is, uh, it's truly, uh, in the truest sense of the word, awesome to see the level of growth with the, the people that put the energy into the classes and make it so that they are learning what is in the classes and what's in the final exams and so on. Uh, just to tag back on to what you were saying about the final exam requirements or, or the uh, proficiencies, as they're called. I mean, to me, w when we restructured that uh, with the help of a lot of great faculty, um, in the, and that was in the 90s, so it was you know, uh, soon after we got uh, Mick Goodrick back on the faculty, he was on Berkeley faculty years and years ago. There were pictures of him with a skinny black tie and a white shirt. Um, uh, and uh, he went over to New England Conservatory for a while, and we were so fortunate to get him back. Um, anyway, the early 90s, uh, the, the final exam requirements, to me, it reminds me of the Brooklyn Bridge. When they built the Brooklyn Bridge down in New York, they didn't think that it was going to be, you know, 2021 and people are still cruising right over it like it's nothing with with things that weren't even dreamed of at that time. To me, you know, the, the final exam thing has, has weathered decades. It also has weathered uh, the its capacity to be adapted for online, uh, what we're doing, the Zoom and so on, making it so that it's uh, you know, just not a teacher that's hanging around uh, um, saying, here, listen to me play on this one. It's it's it is a uh, it's a structure that that the students can build upon and each semester builds on uh, the last and it really takes you to a, a tremendous place at the end. So, uh, yeah, to me, that is uh, one of the greatest things about uh, Berkeley education. It involves a structured approach to things that uh, people maybe would prefer not to think of having a structure uh, uh, because they don't want it to be so crowded up there at the top. <laughs> they don't want to make it so that, uh, um, you know, you mean if you can work, you can develop this? I'm not sure. Yeah, anyway, um, that's, that's the idea with this. If you are motivated, uh, there are people that are motivated to take you from whatever square you are, whether that's square one or square 26 or square 352 uh, to the highest square that you can get to in the time that you're here. And hopefully this sort of approach that, that you, you experience when you're dealing with Berkeley will be something that you're able to uh, adapt for throughout your professional life so that you're always trying to build on what you're doing. And the best people that I get to work with at Berkeley have, have been doing that ever since I met them, and I'm sure they'll be doing it uh, forever, as as will the students I've encountered. Yeah, there there are many things I love about what you just said, and and one is um, when you think about the proficiencies. What's so interesting is you're right; it's like a structured curriculum in a sense that it's final exam material for each of the eight semesters, four for certain majors, six for other majors, eight for for the performance major and yet it's a living structure uh -huh. and it made me think of um, this project that you and Cheryl and, and Larry and I are doing now which is to create a, a book that people could work through as an introduction uh -huh. and right when you do that you see oh great we do the modes like let's look at the modes of the major scale there are many ways to approach that material that's true and so in the discussions that we had is like okay if you've never seen it before what's a really straightforward introduction and then 
the big disclaimer in the beginning is there are many ways to approach this material and your teacher may take you through it in a different way. And you may find another teacher who says, look, if you apply it this way, if you look at it this way, it's also different and it can help you do X and this could help you do Z and this could help you do Y. And, you know, and I think what's so amazing about it is that these fundamentals are never things you graduate from even if you pass that level. And so when people come, it's this living curriculum that they can learn, okay, I'm going to learn the basic approach to be ready to come to Berkeley. Then each semester, I'm going to explore a different approach and a different application. And then throughout your life, you may find yourself doing that again and again and again. Say like what worked for me when I worked on melodic minor, I think I need different things. And and that's, I think, the one biggest thing that I've noticed in my years of, of being in a, a chair position is when people call who are alumni, they'll say, I got this gig. Mm -hmm. Could you please print out level two for me? Could you send me PDFs of those modes? Because I thought I had them, but I did it this way. And now I realize to create stuff for this gig, I need to use this material in a different way. And then they'll call a different teacher and say, can I take a lesson with you? Can I stop by and visit you? And so I think that's what's really interesting to me is that there's room. If there's 55 guitar faculty, there's room for 55 approaches to our structure. And then that encourages each student to find their approach to these fundamentals that they need for the time in which they're playing. Yeah, that's really true. And yeah, part of the the um, collegial um, collegial um, sort of approach to the thing is those students can change teachers uh, a couple of times, mm -hmm. and uh, there is this sort of a, a handoff that goes from one semester to the next, mm -hmm. rather than frequently um, in in smaller programs. It it uh, it is a huge deal when somebody changes teachers, and there's very little. Um, uh, that that uh, is continued from one semester to the next. So this is sort of a, a line of continuity that uh, sort of travels all the way through the curriculum. So it's a, it's a great thing. And I am, I'm sure uh, that uh, the book that uh, we're working on is going to help uh, kind of reinforce that uh, line of continuity. I think so. Um, you know, I, the other day I was on the phone with one of our colleagues and he said, I'm, I'm preparing videos for you. I'm preparing materials for students. I just want to remind you that I don't quite do it the way everybody else does. Mm -hmm. and I said, no, that's good. That's what we want. Right. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that's good for people to know that these fundamentals that we're talking about are things you're going to use in different ways throughout your life. It's a, it's a structure that isn't meant to be rigid. It's meant to be living. Um, and, and in regard to that, Rick, like, as we're kind of coming to the final round of questions, uh -huh. you've, you've touched on different things throughout this conversation that really show, um, whether or not it's defined or, or in flux, like a philosophy that you have. And I think it touches on a question that people have, like what makes someone successful? And that obviously there, there's no real answer to that question, but I think it's not always what you think, like someone, as you're saying, comes in like out of the box as a prodigy and then leaves as a prodigy. Like you're touching on things that some people find intangible, but that are really tangible, like your ability to work with others, your ability to quit, keep learning, your ability to have some courage and humility when it comes to your own skill set. 
Mm-hmm. Are there other things that jump out to you? Like when you see someone, you're like, wow, you know what? That person's going really far. It's not just because they're the top virtuoso that walked into your studio. There are other things. Um, what are a few of those other things maybe that jump to mind for you? Well, what I think of right away is just sort of a, a passion for what they're doing and um, uh, and a, a working relationship with what they're working on. Um, you know, if you think about, uh, um, you know, nobody I'm talking to here, but I mean, if there are people that you have trouble working with, that doesn't mean that you quit the job, you know, and that's the way it is with with musical things that you're working on or, you know, professional skills, I guess, in any field. So you got to have a healthy working relationship. It doesn't, uh, you know, just just uh, like someone maybe you don't particularly care for on your when you're walking to work. Let's say that just somebody, you know, somebody, you know, that hasn't done what you wanted them to do. Always you say good morning. You don't say I'm not talking to you. I'll never talk to you. And that's the way you've got to be with stuff that you don't know how to do yet. It's a, you don't have to love it uh, that you're doing it. You just you just sort of have a working relationship and you can't hate it. That's not going to work either. You just, you know, you find out what you're passionate about, uh, break it down into steps for yourself to make it so that you can learn those things and, and then move forward with it. Uh, find out what inspires you uh, really just sort of trick yourself into being attracted into uh, uh, areas that will take you closer to what you want to do. What do you, what do you do? Let's a uh, thing that I frequently say to students is, okay, it's five years from now. I've seen you in a club in your hometown, or I've seen you at a concert in your hometown. And I say, you know, that, that was a great set. That was, that was amazing what you just played. Okay. What was it that you played? What was in that concert? What, what did you play? What's, what's the instrumentation, you know, it's sort of cast your mind into what would it, is it, is it you um, singing with yourself playing? You know, uh, is it, are you self-accompanying like a, a singer-songwriter? Is it an instrumental group where it's a trio? Is it, a, you know, a big band that you've done arrangements for? What, what sort of thing? So again, this idea of kind of uh, like the Stephen Covey thing, beginning with the end in mind, you know, think about where you want to go. Don't just think about what has just washed up on your doorstep on a given day. Think about where you want to go. What's going to help you to get closer to what you want to do? Uh, okay, well, maybe that's too big to do today. What would be a thing that you could do that would bring you closer to that thing that would bring you closer? And you just sort of build on that sort of thing. And this is, uh, you know, uh, again, I, whenever you start to list people, you're leaving off people that you should. But, uh, you know, uh, well, I think about Larry Bayonne working on cello. That's not because uh, it's not a, uh, a government-ordered activity. Or, or, or uh, Jim Jim Kelly working um, uh, continually on great steel string acoustic things that he's doing, as well as the electric stuff. Uh, you know, just uh, there there are people that are similarly inspired uh, that we work with every day, and it's uh, you know it's it is we're we're very fortunate. I won't say we're lucky. I will say that we're fortunate because it's uh, it's we've all worked to be where we are. And, uh, you know, that's, that's not just luck. That's not just like something falling out of a tree into your hand sort of thing. Um, it's, 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 it's a continual kind of, it's a continually refreshing environment of inspiration, basically, I would say. And uh, uh, as long as you're on that chain, you know, uh, again, like with this, 
this video stuff like this stuff i'm, I'm meeting with uh i'm working with victor wooten and uh steve bailey they're they're both virtuosic uh musicians and they, they are trying to do seminars where they're uh, telecasting around the world and uh they're working with this i'm going to learn more about that it's a way to make it so that i can reach through this uh, computer and make it so that people will be in, similarly inspired to the stuff that i want to help them to learn that's fantastic um i had a teacher who used to say luck favors the prepared <laughs> <laughs> that sounds a lot like what you're saying yeah absolutely yeah. that's a great way to say it too yeah um hey cheryl what's on your mind as we come to the close of our coffee yeah well Rick, thanks for stopping by and and digging into your philosophies about education, about learning, and um, you know applying it. And and also that last bit that you're talking about in terms of you know yeah, looking at the end and game and and what your goals are. I remember I think when I was at, at Berkeley, Berkeley student, and I saw Emily Remmler one time. Um, talking or and, and she said yeah when I was when she was a Berkeley student her whole goal was she just wanted to play standards in a club mm -hmm. all night and I said because I, I, I wasn't really sure what I you know wanted to do and I when I heard that I said oh yeah I want to do that that's what I want to do huh. so that was my first goal out the gate so I think that is important to take that time to you know wherever wherever you have to do that to in a meditation or um, you know talking with your friends or your therapist or whatever that is to find that place that you want to go and then work towards that. That's, that's really, that's really great. Um, Absolutely. Advice. And that's, yeah, that's amazing. Uh, the, the Emily Remmer story is very, that's amazing too. Yeah. You have to, if you're climbing up a ladder, you want to, it's, it really helps to know that it's up on the right wall. <laughs> you get to the top of it. What are you going to do with it? You know, that kind of thing. Yeah, that's sort of like beginning with the end in mind. What's going to do that? And then figuring out which wall you want to go after. And it's really true, Cheryl. You talk uh, to kindred spirits. You talk to your your peers and friends. Uh, the other, you, you see, this is one of the things about Berkeley. Again, I know we're closing up. But um, when, when students come to Berkeley, it's very unusual uh, compared to most colleges. You're not admitted to a major necessarily. And the reason I defend that is because when students get here, they're not really sure of what of the uh, 12 or 14 majors is really going to be best for them. But what becomes clear is they start to see people, uh, they see other students and teachers doing with something that really resonates with them. And that this, this, is, this is a wall that they want to put their ladder up, up against and climb up to the top of and go over to the other side. You know, it's a... a it's a great thing about this place, and uh, we're we're very fortunate to be here. Mm -hmm. Ian, what what's on your mind at the end here? Yeah, I mean, I I also like Cheryl. Uh, really loved that concept of beginning with the end in mind, and I think to tie it into some of the things you were talking about earlier about like you know the proficiency material, the final exam material, and asking like why would I need to use it? Or like, what kind of music would require me to know this sort of thing? And I think that actually, when you're talking about beginning with the end in mind, I think that opens up a whole different sort of dimension of like, how can I use this other 
material creatively with that in mind, right? Like how with this new information and these like new musical concepts, can I like creatively build that end in mind in like a new way that you might not have thought about? So, yeah. Yep. And it's, um, it's a question that you had, but you didn't know you had it yet. I mean, it's, uh, it's something that, you know, uh, it was a song that you were trying to play a couple of weeks ago and you had no idea what you were doing and uh, you, you hope nobody hears the recording of it. <laughs> um, but uh, now if you get the tools that'll make it so that you can get into that that five seven of six or you know the the, the, the secondary dominant to, to whatever chord it is that uh, um, yeah, it sounds smooth and easy when you do it. Uh, and uh, there's you know, that there's just a little information that's getting in your way. You just don't know the right word for it yet. You don't know how to, you know, put together that kind of story. And uh, you don't know quite the formula. But, you know, the music that you want, it's got an answer that will help you uh, uh, get closer to it, helping you to have uh, the vocabulary you need to express yourself and uh, with your collaborators to help them express themselves better, too. You know, as our um, final thought here, it occurs to me that we have three members of the assistant chair of guitar at Berkeley Club here. <laughs> yeah, sorry, Ian. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Uh, well, Ian, you know, maybe it's good that we have this final thought here. Um, yeah, um, we've all played a role in somehow um, affecting Ian's life. So <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> sorry, Ian, or congratulations, however you want to look at it. Um, but one thing that was super helpful for me and has been um, is being able to work with um, with you, Rick, and with Larry, who is another member of both the assistant chair and the uh, guitar chair club at Berkeley. Not a huge club, by the way, everyone listening. Um, and Rick would um, give me advice and sometimes call it things Rick tells Kim. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and it was it was really helpful. Um, and Cheryl, you know, because you're in your second year now and, and trying to figure out all the moving parts and, and how to keep creative and artistic in the midst of them. And um, as like a quick installment of that um, tradition, Rick, is, is there something that comes to mind for you as advice um, to me and Cheryl uh, from your perspective as we're kind of navigating, hopefully, the return back to to campus in a bigger way and, and the next steps as we're all working together. Yeah. Well, I, you know, you're the right people to, to do whatever the next chapter is to, to get us back um, into the next stage. I'd say you're in the, the vantage point. I mean, being the chair assistant chair of the department is a, a very, it's a, it's a tough place to be because um, you have so many constituencies. You uh, you have to represent the administration to the faculty. You have to represent the faculty to the administration. You have to represent the students that are going through the program, probably most important of, of, of all, really making it so that they, they have something that is a cohesive and valuable um, experience as students here that, that will prepare them with the end in mind of, of having a successful career uh, related to what they're studying at Berkeley. So, you know, I just, uh, you know, looking at um, it, it, it's hard with, with uh, so many tiny details that can consume you, uh, like the death of a thousand cuts that are going, uh, and, and to make it so that, um, that you kind of uh, refresh, get a refresh rate on the idea of, 
you know, those big things. What, what will be best for the students? You know, that's the biggest thing. I think, you know, like, is it, uh, I don't know anything about sports, but, you know, to put the ball in the basket and the score takes care of itself. I mean, you figure out uh, what is going to equip the students for what they need, what sort of experiences will make it so that they're better equipped for their, their eventual careers and so on. And what would the faculty be doing to make it so that the students would be like that? What could the administration do to help you to, to help the faculty, to help the students to do this sort of thing? And rather than getting this kind of a, a myopic uh, approach, it's to, to have like a, a wide ranging thing. It takes a lot of effort because there are so many details, so many emails, so many communications, so many deadlines all the time. And that's that's the biggest challenge of it, I would say, uh, you know, from so many different groups. But uh, again, if you put the focus on the students uh, getting better equipped and getting better musically, I don't see how you can go wrong. Cool. Well, thank you, Rick. And I'm glad you're here. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> you're here with mm -hmm. us. Um, Thanks so much for joining us on Coffee Talk. So coffee cheers to Rick Peckham. Cheers. I should have refilled a while ago. Yeah. You <laughs> okay. And Cheryl Bailey and Ian Steed. And uh, we'll see all the rest of you. And you'll hear us on the next Coffee Talk. Thank you very much.